Hi, everybody. This is Gatsad. Many of you are now familiar with the erroneous term settled science, right? When someone wants to uh, end a debate as relating to something that is within the realm of science, they usually will invoke the, but that's settled science, which means shut up. And if you debate, then you are a science denier. And of course, this is now coming up in the ongoing Twitter saga that we're seeing between Joe Rogan and Peter Hotez, the, uh, the, the vaccine uh, pediatrician specialist. Uh, and then Elon Musk has weighed in and Bill, I think it's Bill Ackerman, the hedge fund guy, they're each putting money saying, hey, we'll contribute. At least Joe Rogan put in money. And I think Bill Ackerman also put in money. And now it's up to a I think well over maybe 1.5 million. I, I weighed in on this yesterday. But today what I wanted to do is take uh, a couple of minutes and uh, remind you about how dangerous it is to use the term settled science. Now, it is true that some phenomena, some scientific theories become part of the core knowledge of the discipline. In other words, it becomes, if you'd like, uh part of the, the, the tree of knowledge that that field has built. But it is always provisional in that you always leave room for the fact that something could down the line be falsified. So that which we thought might have been true 300 years ago, we might no longer think to be true today. So just think, for example, about the, the acceptance of Freudian theory uh, in psychoanalysis and how you know, if you now go to uh, residence to, to do a residency in, in, in psychiatry, you're unlikely to see the same focus on Freudian analysis that you might have 50 years ago, uh, and so on. And there are countless examples. But to that point, several years ago, I posted a sad truth clip, which I'll put at the end of the current clip. Uh, for those of you who are watching this on YouTube, it's a it's a it's a quote that I took, uh, that I quoted in this book right here, The Consuming Instinct, my 2011 book, where this is in the concluding, the epigraph of the concluding chapter. It's a quote by J.B.S. Haldane. And let me just put up, this is a uh, biography on J.B.S. Haldane. J.B.S. Haldane was a brilliant evolutionary geneticist who was also a guy that had a who was very quotable he could always come up with this uh you know very pithy uh poignant uh, quip that becomes very quotable so my favorite arguably my favorite quote of all time which speaks to this idea of settled science is one that he came up with which I, as i said i quote in the epigraph of chapter 11, I suppose the, so now this is his quote. He's talking about the four stages that scientists go through before they accept an idea. I suppose the process of acceptance will pass through the usual four stages. One, this is worthless nonsense. Two, this is an interesting but perverse point of view. Three, this is true but quite unimportant. Four, I always said so. So what basically happens is that there is a there is an orthodoxy uh, that defines what is the acceptable thought within the field, and everybody 
uh, you know, uh, walks in step. Uh, and then someone comes along who's a pioneer who says, no, no, wait a second, this makes no sense. And it is often those who come up with these radical ideas that are then immortalized in intellectual, uh, in the history of intellectual thought, precisely because they came up with an idea that was counter to the prevailing orthodoxy, and they were eventually proven to be right. Now, the reason why, as I explained in the the earlier Sad Truth clip, which I'm uh, providing you at the end of this clip, the reason why I had chosen it as my favorite scientific quote of all time, well, because it perfectly capped, it really is an accurate depiction of how most scientists think, rather than being these sort of impartial, unbiased navigators across competing evidence and then letting the truth lead them to the right uh, destination, most are very dogmatic. Most are vested in a particular paradigm, in a particular worldview, and they will fight tooth and nail to ensure that their uh, paradigm wins out. Uh, this is why, for example, I talked about in Chapter 7 of The Parasitic Mind, the book by Sperber and Mercier, where they were arguing that the human mind has not evolved the capacity to reason in order to get at the truth, but rather to win arguments, right? It's actually, stay with me, it's this book right here, The Enigma of Reason, okay? Uh, now, I cite it in the context of Chapter 7 of The Parasitic Mind, where I'm arguing that, hey, you can build nomological networks of cumulative evidence that allow you to have unassailable cumulative data that suggests that your you know, uh, phenomenon is veridical. But even then, you have to have epistemological humility in that if something comes along that falsifies it, then so be it. And I just want, I don't mean to hit you with a lot of books. This is a book that was very influential in my thinking, Born to Rebel, is a book by Frank Soloway who looked at... Uh, birth order and how birth order affects the likelihood of you being someone who is either fighting tooth and nail against some new radical scientific innovation or whether you are the one who is either supporting the scientific innovation or the one who espoused it and it turns out that there is an incredible here's i i, I don't i don't know if you can see it but there's all the diff the, the 28 most radical scientific innovations, you know, Copernican revolution, uh, Hutton's theory of Earth, Darwinian revolution, Harvey and the circulation of blood, Newtonian revolution, and celestial mechanics, and so on. So each of these, uh, you know, uh, radical scientific innovations came along. And so what Frank Soloway was doing was arguing that there is a and actually a Darwinian mechanism by which we should expect later borns to be more likely to be the ones who come up with these radical innovations and who support these radical innovations. And incidentally, I'm the last born of four children. So there you go. Uh, now, why am I mentioning all this? Because all that I'm talking about here is is studying the the cognitive obstacles that cause not only lay people, but scientists who should be you know, honest interlocutors, but they're human beings. And so they don't like to be proven wrong. They don't like to say, hey, you know, maybe I was wrong about A, B, or C. 
And so they will be, you know, as you show them more evidence, they're going la la la, kicking and screaming. And that's not how a scientist should think. Now, the reason why the JBS Haldane quote is so poignant, as I've explained in the earlier clip that I'm putting for you here at the end of this clip, it's because it perfectly captures my own academic career because I came along and said, you know, I pioneered the use of evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biological principles in the study of consumer psychology, consumer behavior, marketing, uh, in, in various areas in the behavioral sciences. And all of my colleagues in the social sciences were like, this is bullshit. What, what, what does biology have to do with this? Many till today have said so. But my career is perfectly captured by those four stages in that many of the people who were vehemently against many of the ideas that I was trying to publish uh, you know, in my nearly now th you know, three decades of, uh, as a professor are now fans of my work. I've seen them go through the four stages. And to that point, to show you that some of the you know, most powerful ideas in science are precisely those that were most staunchly rejected. I have here a paper, which I'm just going to read you the reference. It's in a journal called Scientometrics. I've, I've actually published two papers in that journal. Uh, Scientometrics is the quantifiable study of science. For example, you know, you know, you do an analysis of citation patterns and so on. So it's, it's a great journal called Scientometrics. And this is a paper by Juan Miguel Campagnaro in 2009, volume 81, number two, pages 549 to 565. I'll put a link to, to that paper. And it's, it's a paper that I've mentioned in other contexts. It's, it's titled Rejecting and Resisting Nobel Class Discoveries, Accounts by Nobel Laureates. I'm just going to read for you the uh, introduction or the, the, you know, the opening quote, I review and discuss instances in which 19 future Nobel laureates encountered resistance on the part of the scientific community towards their discoveries and instances in which 24 future Nobel laureates encountered resistance on the part of scientific journal editors or referees to manuscripts that dealt with discoveries that later would earn them the Nobel Prize. Now, why am I mentioning this? You know, these rejections of these Nobel works were originally staunchly rejected, brushed aside. This is nonsense. This is gibberish. Think about the JBS Haldane uh, quote that I mentioned earlier. Precisely because, look, something could be rejected either because it's complete nonsense or because it is so true but yet so earth-shattering in, in busting the existing knowledge, the existing orthodoxy, the existing paradigms that people don't want to hear it. So, for example, when I went to the University of Michigan back in 2008, I had been invited, this is when this first book, The Evolutionary Basis of Consumption, had come out, where I was, this is an academic book where I was demonstrating how you would use evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology to study our consumatory nature. I was trying to Darwinize, I was trying to demonstrate how you would Darwinize the field of consumer behavior, broadly speaking. And I had been invited to the psychology department and the uh, the business school, two separate talks. And if on, I think it was on a Thursday, I gave the talk, same talk. I asked if I could give the same talk. They said, yes, there wouldn't be too much overlap in audience. I give the, the talk in psychology, which is 
consistently ranked one of the top psychology programs in the world. Uh, my former uh, doctoral supervisor obtained his PhD in psychology at University of Michigan. Many, many uh, of the top psychologists have gotten their PhDs at University of Michigan, including Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on in behavioral decision making. In any case, uh, I go to University of Michigan to give my talk in the psychology department on on this this book and on my work in evolutionary consumption. And they're all like, yeah, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. And this is a tough crowd. But many of them, you know, were certainly open to the biological bases of human behavior. And so it wasn't a difficult sell uh, for me to make to, to, to the people in the psych department. On the other hand, when I give the exact same talk the next day, it was the most hostile uh, crowd I'd ever had. Uh, possibly the recent talk that I gave at USC where some of the audience members were profoundly obnoxious and hostile might compete for the record of the most hostile crowd. But I, I believe that the University of Michigan crowd remains by far the most hostile crowd. And this was a, a more a technical talk, whereas the one at USC was about the age of enlightenment and you know deontological versus consequentialist ethics. I mean, also a very serious academic talk, but not about my you know evolutionary psychology work. In any case, what I had uh, in the parasitic mind, I talked about how I noticed that as a general pattern, the doctoral students were the ones who were most open, uh, this is at University of Michigan, to my work because they weren't yet wedded to a particular paradigm so that they so that their their brains were sufficiently malleable to be open, to be inquisitive to new ideas. In this case, the new idea of seeking to Darwinize consumer behavior. Whereas many of the more senior professors who had spent their careers being in social constructivist world, where you reject biology as being an explicative factor in, in explaining human behavior, were some of the uh, more aggressive ones. There were some junior people who were aggressive, but as a general pattern, the doctoral students were a lot more open than the more senior professors. And precisely because once you are wedded to the orthodoxy, it becomes very difficult to move you away from that. So when I see scientists, academics, using their authority, uh, I wear a lab coat, shut up. I have MD, shut up. I have a PhD, shut up. It's settled. Climate change, settled. Vaccine, settled. Right? And, and on and on and on, right? Let's think back about Galileo, right? What happened with, to him in the Inquisition? Let's think back of Socrates further back. No good comes from cashing the chip of, I have greater authority. I'm not going to. The beauty of science is that it is democratic. If someone were to come today with clear data that falsifies some accepted theory today, we would have to accept it, right? So yes, it turns out that most people who are scientists are going to have the credentials that allows them to work in science. But I talk about uh, in, in several of my works, and even most recently in my forthcoming book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, I talk about uh, I think her name is Emily Rosa, who published a paper in JAMA, Journal of the Academy of or the American Medical Association, very prestigious journal, from her grade four, grade five, I can't remember, maybe grade four or grade five project, where she studied 
the efficacy of touch therapy. Read my forthcoming book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, about that story. I also mention it uh, in, in uh, I think it was in The Consuming Instinct. In any case, she was only you know 10 years old or somewhere around then when she published that particular paper. Uh, so science doesn't say you could only make a contribution if you wear a white lab coat. So anybody who tells you, shut up, the science is settled, they are exactly behaving in a way that is perfectly antithetical to the way that science operates. Science is always navigating in provisional truths. Yes, in many cases, we've amassed so much evidence that we could pretty much sleep at night knowing that this is unlikely to be falsified, but we always leave the door open. Okay. I hope that this helps. I hope that it, it, it provides the epistemological framework for how we should be conducting our discussions and our debates, and certainly in the public space. I mean, one of the things that I love to do is not just publish in you know academic journals and scientific journals, but to also mix it up amongst the crowd. And a lot of the behaviors that I see on, on both sides of any particular issue suggest that a lot of people, including so-called esteemed scientists, have forgotten what it is to be a scientist. Take care, everybody. Cheers.